And I'm happy to say we've made it. Uh, We've made it through another series, uh, another opportunity for us to learn about uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through the work of the prophets and the apostles, that which has been declared through his holy and sacred scriptures. For over the last three months, we have been looking and exploring the life of Elijah, one of the greatest spokesmen and one of the greatest prophets and followers of God. It's my hope and it's been my prayer that whether you're young or old, you would see that Elijah through this series was a man who was just like us, a man who had a very ordinary faults and fears and frailties, yet was a, a man who did extraordinary things because of his faith and power in, in the Almighty God. I want us to realize that through this series, it has been my prayer that we too would be Elijah's. That in fact, we sing one of our, uh, probably one of our most favorite praise songs is that we live in the days of Elijah. The days where people's, God's people declare the word of the Lord. It's a time where righteousness, the songwriter says, is being restored. But for that to happen, for us to be the Elijahs in our world today, then we must be willing to stand up even against the greatest of crowds and speak the truth as unpopular as it may be, just as Elijah did. And so we come to the final week of this series. And what would God do? How would God put an exclamation point to Elijah's life? How would it all end for our faithful friend This man who sprung onto the scene out of total obscurity in 1 Kings 17. This man who stood toe-to-toe against a wicked royal family, as well as the evil hearts of an entire nation. This man who would do so and do it victoriously. This man who raised the dead. This man who held back the rain. This man who commanded fire down from heaven, who anointed both king and prophets. What would God do in his final days here on earth? For this man who flew onto the stage of human history, Elijah would exit in a similar and even miraculous way. The prophet of God who had run his race, who had finished the task that was set before him, now was going to be taken away. And he had but one final message to the people in the world that he was leaving. While they weren't around, I can imagine that Elijah probably articulated something similar to the classic rock group REO Speedwagon. Even though it hurts to say goodbye, it's time for me to fly. I wonder if Elijah had that thought as he readied himself for that heavenly departure into glory. As we view this heavenly departure of Elijah leaving earth, we are reminded of our own departure from this world. Because if we don't remind ourselves of that, this becomes just a wonderful story about someone else. But it's my hope and it's my prayer and hopefully the hope and prayer of each Christian here that one day we too will be caught up into heaven just as our friend Elijah did. So let's turn to 2 Kings 2.2. And let us use this Sunday as a church where we remember the triumphal entry of our Lord and Savior into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday to not remember, per se, an entry, but a triumphant departure, but also remembering in our hearts and minds the yearning we have 
for Jesus Christ not to one day come on a donkey, but one day to take us as the conquering king and savior of the world. So let's look at 2 Kings 2.2, and I'll be reading the entire text of the chapter, and so I would ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word as we get into our text this morning. This is what the word of the Lord says. When the Lord was about to take Elijah to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, but do not speak of it. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha said, but do not speak of it. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men of the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took off his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I can do do for you before I am taken from you. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took off his own clothes and tore them apart. He picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak that had fallen from him. He struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked, When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Look, they said, we, your servants, have fifty able men. Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha said, do not send them. But then they persisted until he was too ashamed to refuse. So he said, send them. And they sent the 50 men who searched for three days but did not find him. When they returned to Elisha, Elisha, who was staying in Jericho, he said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word once again. Over these last three months, we have been challenged by it. We've been encouraged by your working in the life of your servant, Elijah. Lord, we have been called to live just like your prophet did. 
And Lord, now we come to the final chapter, the final uh, episode of this incredible, incredible man's life. And Father, I pray that we would recognize this morning, just as Elijah did, that our departure is coming soon. And Lord, I pray that we would recognize that and that we would live just as Elijah did, using the most of every moment, making the most of every opportunity, striving to do all that he could to finish the race that you had called him to. Lord, I pray that we would do the same. Lord, we need your spirit to come and to teach us and to guide us and to lead us to all truth so that we will know how to apply this scripture in our very lives. So we ask for that this morning. Take away anything that distracts. Take away anything that will keep us from a clear hearing of your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we look at Elijah's departure from this world, as I said before, we are reminded of our own departure of our own departure, of leaving this world, whether, if you will, through the way of the casket or through the way of the clouds as Elijah did. And as we look at this incredible departure, we need to recognize three things that our lives must include, that must be involved in our lives as we await this departure into glory. The first one is, in our outlines this morning, is that uh, waiting for our departure involves waiting on our time of parting waiting on our own time of parting. The life of Elijah has been a whirlwind of activity. No pun is to be given there. He has gone from one place to another, coming onto the scene at just the right time and in the right place. And as he lives out his remaining hours here on earth, we recognize how he conducted himself. And it's through that that I believe Elijah gives us an example of how we are to wait on our own departure and what should be involved in this parting that we have as Christians. I want to look at a couple things in regards to this departure of Elijah. The first thing is that it was a privileged opportunity. It was a privileged opportunity. As we look at the life of Elijah, we recognize that as he departs, he's going to depart far differently than most ever would in this world. The Bible says, in fact, in in verse 1, that it says, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. Now, for many of us, we just skim right beyond that, and we don't recognize the utter uh, majesty of the statement that is given there. Elijah is not going to experience death. He is not going to experience the grave. In fact, this is such a privilege that only one other individual in all of Scripture has been given that opportunity. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, we're told of a man named Enoch. Enoch was a young man, only 365 years of age. He was a holy man, and he walked with the Lord. And in verse 24 of Enoch, uh, I'm sorry, of Genesis 5, we are told that as Enoch is walking with the Lord, verse 24 says that he walked with the Lord and was no more because the Lord took him away. Sadly, this is all that we're told of Enoch's story. No fanfare, no pomp and circumstance. There's just a quick commute from earth to heaven for Enoch. It's because of this that we look with such attention to the life of Elijah and his departure. 
Because with Enoch, he gets just a one quick statement. He's gone to be with the Lord. But with Elijah, we are given a whole chapter of his last day's activities and what that departure looked like. And so we want to explore that because we want to find out more about this departure and what it's all about. This man who wouldn't taste death, this man who God was sending a heavenly, if you will, limo for, We've got a whole chapter dedicated to it, and we need to study it and hear about this incredible privilege that God gave Elijah. What a fitting and gracious way to honor a faithful servant. And that's what he does to Elijah. Now notice there's a privileged opportunity. Notice also it's a promised occasion. It's a promised occasion. As one quickly sees in our text... Uh, very quickly in chapter 2, you will see that this is something that everybody is well aware of. In fact, at the beginning, we are told right away in chapter 2 that he's going to be taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. Now notice what the uh, text says in verse 3. The company of the prophets at Bethel came to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? It seems, and we're not sure how it takes place, but we recognize that Elijah was made aware that he was going to depart. He was aware even of the day. Now, it wasn't just Elijah who was aware of this, but it had been promised to Elijah, and Elisha knew about it, and even the schools of prophets. In two different schools, in two different cities, the prophets would come out to Elisha and say, don't you know it's the day? Don't you know that your master is going to be taken away? Now, we're not sure how they learned of it. Probably, most likely, uh, the word of the Lord came to Elijah just as it had done before. And the Lord had probably said to Elijah, I'm going to take you home. I'm going to take you away. And it wasn't something that he was supposed to stay quiet about. So no doubt he shared it with those who were walking uh, the way of the Lord. And they could rejoice over it and pursue it. These prophets had known of Enoch experiencing such a fate. And now they would hear of their own, a contemporary of theirs, who would experience the same fate. And they looked, I believe, with great anticipation, which is brought up in the questions that come up. The final thing that I want you to notice in this first point is that it's a private occurrence. It's a private occurrence. Yes, it was privileged. Only Elijah and Enoch have been able to say that they did not experience the grave. Just as it had been promised, and the many were aware of the promise of the Lord's coming to take his own back to be with him, there's a level of it being private as well. Even though there were a great many people who knew this departure was coming, no one knew the real specifics regarding this arrival of God to take his a servant home with him. Now we know that he was given the day, but nothing else is given. There's not an exact time. There's not an exact location. All there is is I'm coming to get you. I want you to be ready. And so here we see that even though he wasn't privy to all the details, he knew that there was an impending departure and he was called to be ready to go, to be ready at a moment's notice. How all of this applies to us as Christians Even though we find ourselves in the uh, first part of the Old Testament, we can recognize as Christians the relevance of Elijah's story, the importance of Elijah's departure. You see, because as Christians, we can look to Elijah's departure and understand our departure as well. 
I want you to go back over those points, and I want you to begin to apply them to our life. First of all, we, as we look at our departure, and the opportunity to experience a departure like Elijah is a privileged opportunity. Every Christian should long for and hope to experience the same departure that Elijah did. Unlike every other Christian before us, except for that of Enoch and Elijah, all Christians have had to first face the grave before they could face their Savior. But the Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we watch and pray for the coming of our Lord. It is my hope, it is my prayer that this generation will be the generation that will be caught up in the clouds. Now you say, well, Tim, where, where do you come up with that? Where, where does it happen? We have to understand not only is this a privileged opportunity for a particular generation, whether today or tomorrow or a million eons from now, whatever the Lord would tarry, the Bible makes it clear that there's a promise to the, to the Lord's coming. I want you to look at a couple passages of Scripture with me. Turn for a moment to John 14. John 14. Jesus is uh, in the middle of the, the Passion Week, which we are celebrating this week. And as he's sharing his final words with his disciples, he finds himself around the table after washing their feet, after teaching them what it means to serve one another, after predicting his own betrayal, after predicting Peter's denial that would take place in just a matter of hours Jesus wants to comfort his disciples. In verse 14, in chapter 14, he says this in verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus responds with one of the most famous verses of all of Scripture, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Nowhere in recorded history do we know of a time where Jesus ever came and took his disciples away. In fact, history and tradition tells us that all of the disciples would die deaths of martyrdom. As a result of that, we recognize that that promise is still left to be fulfilled. Now, Paul talks about this. Turn a little more to the right into the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians speaks of this promised occasion. In 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, 4, Paul speaks of this. And this is what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. I'll let you get there for a moment. Yet again, another promise of this occasion of the Lord's coming. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or die, or to grieve like the rest of the men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring, Jesus with, will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. The Apostle Paul says there's a day coming. There's a day coming where the Lord will come back to receive those back to himself. He will first uh, bring those out of the grave, those who have died and who have gone before us. And then he will not leave those who are living, but he will catch us up. He will uh, capture us, if you will, in the clouds so that we can go without ever experiencing death, that we can see Jesus Christ face to face. It's a privileged opportunity. It's a promised occasion. And finally, as I said before, it is a private occurrence. And what I mean by that is while Elijah knew of the day, we too could say, just as Elijah did, today is the day of the Lord's coming. And we could believe that with all our heart because there's nothing in the Scriptures that say it cannot be that way. In fact, it's a private occurrence just as it was for Elijah because we don't know the specifics. In fact, the Bible says in Matthew 24, 36 that no one knows the hour or the day of our Lord's coming. In fact, that is something that is reserved for the Father in heaven and Him alone. While we would all like the heads up, while we would all like to put it on our Google calendars, we can't have that opportunity. But it's a private thought within the plans and providence of God of when that day will come. Now, as I speak regarding the Lord's return, many of you, your, your, your minds are piqued, your attention is, is brought up because this is something that, that is a hot topic in our day and age today. And as we speak about the Lord's return, it's commonplace for us to react differently uh, to the Lord's return. And I want you to write down some things. I want you to meet some of my friends. These are all Christians, and my friends have different thoughts about the idea or the thought of the Lord coming. The first person I want to introduce you to, and write this in your outlines, is Clueless Clint. Clueless Clint. Clint's a friend of mine, and he's a Christian, but he hasn't thought much about his Savior's return. The reason why is Clint's a young guy. He's got a whole lot of life ahead of him. He wants to get married. He wants to have kids. He wants to experience life as, as an adult, because you know how much fun being an adult is. And so he's looking at his life, and he, he's saying, hey, I don't want Jesus to come back. I'm just starting to enjoy myself here. I'm, I'm just finally starting to make some money and being able to purchase the things that I want and enjoying the things of this world. And so clueless Clint isn't even thinking about the Lord's return because he's so focused in on what he wants to accomplish here in the day that he's living in that he can't think of heaven. Clueless Clint knows a friend that I know as well, and her name is Freaked Out Fran. And Freaked Out Fran, you know, I feel bad for her because she watches the news and, and she hears words like apocalypse and the end, and she just gets freaked out, and she gets scared. Now, now just like uh, Clueless Clint, Freaked Out Fran is, uh, is one who is a believer, 
but probably because of, of her walk with God, she, she doesn't want the Lord to return. And she's kind of scared when she hears it's the time of the end because she's not ready. And while she may believe that she's saved, she's not ready to receive the Lord uh, when he comes because her life is out of order. Her life, uh, there's issues and there's struggles that she's unwilling to get beyond. Uh, this was brought up. I, I met a freaked out Fran not too long ago. I got a call in the church office, and they said, a young lady would like to talk with you. Uh, could she come right away? And I said, you know, it's a busy week. And, and uh, Carol and Missy said, no, she really was worked up. She wants to talk with you. She's worried about the Lord's return. And I said, okay. And I said, uh, why don't you have her come, and we'll, uh, we'll meet this afternoon. And, and we met, and, and this poor girl, she was younger, and she's just freaked out. She says, I've been reading all this stuff, and the Lord's coming, isn't he? And I says, well, yes, believers believe he is coming, and it could happen at any time. She goes, what's a girl to do? And I said, live an upright and holy life. She says, but, I, but, but, but I've got issues in my life. And we began to talk about the issues, and, and she was living in sin and, and living for herself. And so she heard of all these things, these impending judgments, and she was completely freaked out because she wasn't ready for the Lord's coming. And so we talked about it, and I said, this is a great place for you to be at. Now you have an opportunity to turn your life to Christ, to give yourself over to him once and for all, and so that you can look forward to his coming and not look back. And the saddest commentary that I can tell you is that she looked and she said, but that will mean my boyfriend will leave me. And she got up and she left. She was unwilling to give up the world, as scared as she is. And I can assure you today, she's just as scared as she was the moment she walked into my office. She was freaked out. And some of you are freaked out at the Lord's coming because you're not ready, because you find yourself not eager to do what is good, but finding yourself eager to pursue the pleasures and the pursuits of this world. Well, I've got another friend for you. I've got lots of friends. I'm a popular guy. And then my third friend is like a guy that I'd like to call Newspaper Ned newspaper Ned. And when you talk about uh, end times and you talk about the Lord coming back, uh, my friend newspaper Ned is the guy who's watching the TV and reading the newspaper and looking at the world's events and seeing what's happening in the Middle East and all the wars and rumors of wars. And he's come to the conclusion that based on what he reads in the newspaper and what he sees in this world, that the end is near. And that, in fact, it's probably coming far sooner than we would ever imagine. As if none of these events, that there's never been wars and rumors of wars, that there's never been earthquakes, that there's never been leaders who have been charismatic, who have risen up uh, to speak to the world as a whole. As if none of that's happened, that we look at our life and a history in a bubble and say, because of this, then it must be the end. Newspaper Ned. Now, Newspaper Ned has a friend and, and his name is Bible Code Bill. Bible Code Bill. Now, Bible Code Bill uh, is like Ned because he's wanting to find out when the hour and when the day is going to be of the coming of the Lord. But instead of using the newspaper like Ned does, uh, Bill goes to the Word. And I commend him for that, but I don't like where he goes with that because Bill, Bible Code Bill is a guy who reads books, Christian books, and listens to guys uh, like uh, the famous Harold Camping of Family Radio, who has figured out, based on a Bible code of mathematics, that we are living in the 7,000th year uh, since the flood. 
How did he come up with that? I threw a whole set of numbers, and I've read through it, and it's just it's mind-boggling to think that he would even invest any amount of time into figuring this out. Again, because the Bible says no one knows the hour or the day. And so if God says no one knows the hour or the day, then what my job is to find out is what the hour of the day is. Hello? If no one can know, and that's from the words of our Lord, that we can maybe recognize the season of his coming but never be able to pinpoint the date, then the last thing that I want to do is probably pinpoint the day of his return. That's not so with, in fact, one of the most listened to Christian broadcasters in America, Harold Camping on Family Radio. He has articulated because we're in the 7,000th year of the flood that the Lord will return in a little over a month. May 21st. If you have not seen the billboards, you see them. There's three of them I know on the way home as I was taking Amanda to the airport. Three of them that say May 21st, Judgment Day. And millions of people are buying into this because of this idea of a Bible code. And then those that uh, want a little hope that May 21st is the actual return of Jesus Christ, but Judgment Day comes some months later on October 21st. You've got a little time to figure things out and to make your way. Bible Code Bill. Now, there's a couple other people that I want to bring to your attention. There's Doubting Daphne. Doubting Daphne. Now, Doubting Daphne is a, is a young lady. In fact, she's not a young lady. She's an older lady. I've got to put this right. She's a young, an older woman who wants to believe that the Lord is returning. But the more she lives life, the more she gets closer to her own death, the more she begins to doubt that the Lord is coming. She looks at the world and she sees the world just really struggling to pursue God and to follow Jesus Christ. And she's beginning to wonder, is the Lord truly going to return? It just seems like we just live each day and day in and day out and nothing happens. Doubting Daphne is one, the longer she lives, the less she believes. Now amidst all of our friends, from Ned to Bill to Daphne and to Fran, the one that I think that we need to follow is the last one, and that is expectant and enduring Elijah. Expectant and enduring Elijah. We find our model for a proper expectation of our departure and the Lord's return in the life of our friend, the prophet. In a nutshell, we see a man who knew the Lord was coming soon. That should throw up some, some alarms in our head. He, he knew the Lord was coming. Well, we know the Lord is coming as well. And so how ought we to live? How should we uh, use the time that we have? Now, nowhere in the text does it say that he ever speculated about the time or location of the event. He didn't waste his time doing that. Number two, we don't see him trying to decipher messages for hidden clues. He didn't sit there and say, okay, Elisha, let's bring out the book of the law. Let's try to figure out when and where this thing is going to happen. He doesn't just go and sit on a hillside in some sort of communal living waiting for the day of the Lord. Nor does he find himself so preoccupied with the things of this world that he misses out on the Lord's promises and fulfillment. So what does he do? This leads us to our next point. That expectant and enduring Elijah was ready for his departure because he was walking the right path. He was walking the right path. How is one to live in light of the Lord's coming for us? Elijah declares it. I want to read a passage of Scripture for you. 
from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. And this is what it speaks of regarding the day of the Lord. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by the fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's the question that we have to ask as Christians. He goes on and he says, you ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of heavens, of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with the Lord's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteousness, home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, this is us, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Elijah shows us what Peter is articulating, that we are to live holy and godly lives, that we are to make every effort to be spotless and blameless and at peace with our God. We do this because far too many of us find ourselves focused on what I would like to call the minor thoughts of the Lord's return. We're so busy wanting to talk about times and dates and so busy about talking about all the things that are going to on. While those are good and those are important for us to know because they're recorded in Scripture, we begin to forget that we focus in on the times and the dates and we forget about the life of holiness we are called to live. It's all about us living holy and being ready for the coming of our Lord. Now let's look at it in the life of Elijah. You're saying, well, Tim, you've kind of gone on a tangent. I have. Now let's bring it back. If we want to live that way and we want to walk the right path, it means walking in a life of purpose. It means walking on this path of, or life of purpose. I want you to notice two things about Elijah's life as you find your way back to 2 Kings chapter 2. There are two important things that we have to remember. First of all, Elijah listened to the Lord. Throughout his life, we see Elijah listening to the Lord. Seven different times in our study over the last three months, we have seen the word or the phrase, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And every time we see Elijah opening his ears and hearing from his God. And each of those times as he opens his ears, he's ready to listen to the word of the Lord. But he didn't just listen to the word of the Lord. He was led by the Lord. Three times in our text, we see Elijah being called to go from one place to another. In fact, in uh, verse 4, he says, Then Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he later says, The Lord has sent me to Bethel and, and then to, to Jordan. The Lord's sending him places. And Elijah doesn't just hear, Yeah, I, I hear you. But he does what God calls him to. My children have a problem between those two things. They listen, but they don't move. Son, I need you to take your laundry downstairs. Uh-huh, I gotcha. Well, when is it going to register to your feet that you have to go and move? Your brain's not going to move the laundry down. Your ears can't do it. And some of us hear the word of the Lord. We want to listen to the word of the Lord, but we're not doing what the word of the Lord says. And the book of James tells us that we cannot just be hearers of the word, but we must be doers. 
And if you learn anything about Elijah's life, the reason why God was able to do great things in his life was because he listened to what the word of the Lord said, and then he did it. What a novel approach. Listening to the words of the Lord and then doing it. This is a life on purpose. Sadly, so many of us fail to listen to the Lord, and we're wondering why God isn't speaking to us. He is. It was said when uh, our friend Amato preached uh, some weeks ago that if we're not in this word, God isn't speaking to us. And there's a lot of us that are desiring for God to speak to us, to tell us where we should go or what his good and pleasing will is. And if you're not in the word of God, you're not getting anything. And I would go even farther to say, per that statement that my friend made, that if you are not being led by the Lord, you are doing nothing for him. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he went and did it. That's a walk or the life of purpose, knowing that our job is to obey our Lord and Savior, just as Elijah did. Notice there's a walk of progress. In the final days of Elijah's life, we see a great movement. He's not sitting around. He has not retired and said, I'll let the Lord come to me. But he's moving. He visits four towns, about 60 miles, 60 to 80 miles, based on where, what particular spot you would have started from, of traveling. And, and scholars believe this all happened in one day, which either means that he got those heavenly Nikes on again that he ran to Jezreel with, or he probably took some form of transportation, probably a horse or maybe a camel or something like that. He heads in verse 1, he's in Gilgal. In verses 2 and 3, he's in Bethel. In uh, the next passage there, he's in, heading to Jer- Jericho. And finally, he ends up somewhere on the Jordan River. Why is the Lord sending him to all these places? The text tells us a couple times that he goes, and at each place he sees a company of prophets. And I believe, as scholars do, that what, what is happening here is Elijah saying goodbye to his students, to his pupils, to the young uh, group of prophets in the land that he had no doubt been a part of anointing. Elisha's one of them, but there were far many. In fact, it says a couple different times that there was a company of over 50 in regards to this. These were the men that were going to speak for the Lord to the nation of Israel as God had promised. But what was he doing? Why was he stopping at each of these schools, these seminaries of the Old Testament? I believe there are three reasons why he does that isn't explicit in the text, but I see it implicit in the life of Elijah. First of all, I think as as he saw his day approaching where he would depart, I think the first thing that Elijah did when he met with these men was to take special time to exalt God for all that he had done. I can't imagine Elijah talking to the next generation of prophets and not articulate Our God is a great God. He's a marvelous God. He's a powerful God. He's a faithful God. Young guys, I want you to hear this because I've walked with this God and he has never failed to uh, not do what he said he was going to do. He has never found himself failing at anything. And so come to know that God and worship that God and pursue that God. But then that exaltation moved to encouragement. Here are these young prophets. He's about to leave them. What would be his farewell words to these young prophets? The text doesn't tell us, but i got to believe that Elijah, this battle-wearied man, this man that has endured all kinds of trouble and with great patience and endurance, says to the prophets, you're going to need great faith. You're going to need great faith to stand and be the prophet that God has called you to be. 
So do it. Walk closely with your God. Seek his face. Do all that you can to fight the good fight. Finally, I think that these schools of prophets in the visit of Elijah were edified. He was able to speak into their lives. Older speaking into the life of younger. The one who experienced great opposition and great struggle in his pursuit to follow God had the unique opportunity to pour into the lives of those around him. And so I think this is so true for our life as well. Whether we go from place to place, ministry to ministry, job to job, chapter of one life into a new chapter in, in, in the next chapter in our life, that we are called at all times as we progress as human beings to exalt God at all times, to encourage those around us, and to be pouring in and edifying the body of Christ that we're a part of. This is what I believe Elijah was doing. And this is what made the walk of faith so rewarding for him and what it can make it rewarding for us. So we see purpose and progress. Finally, we see a partnership. A partnership. Elijah, no doubt, loved visiting those schools of prophets, but he held in his heart a relationship with one prophet, the prophet Elisha. We don't hear much about Elisha in his time with Elijah, but they had been together for a long time. Elijah had received the friendship of Elisha in a time of great fear and despair and pain. It was Elisha, in fact, who was God's provision and remedy for Elijah's loneliness and discouragement. And I want you to see a couple things about Elisha in the text. Notice, first of all, he was committed to his fellow believer. Notice what the text says in verse 2, 4, and 6. Each time Elijah says to him the following. He says, stay here because the Lord has sent me, he says, to Bethel. Then he says um, later on to Jericho. And then he says later on to the Jordan. And each time Elisha says, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. Now, why would Elijah do this? Why would Elijah stay, say, Elisha, you stay here? I wonder if it was like what my older brother used to do when his friends were around. I would want to tag along and say, you know what? You stay here and, and, and you keep a lookout of, of what's going on. We'll come back and get you. And then eight hours later, I'm still standing there like the idiot that I was. Just, just stay there. We're going to go do our own thing. We'll be back in a couple minutes. You just wait. I don't think that's what Elijah's doing. I think what Elijah's doing is testing the heart of this younger prophet. Are you committed? Are you willing to stick it out? Are you committed to me? And are you committed to the walk of the Lord? You know, commitment says a lot to our fellow believers. That's why I'm saddened many times by the lack of commitment that I see here as a church. Our lack of commitment in assembling together. I've told you this before, and it's sad to even talk about it, but on any given Sunday, a third of our church isn't here. There's something wrong with that. How can we be committed to one another? And you say, Tim, well, there's a lot of things going on. I totally understand that. I've got a family. I've got outside family. I've got a business. I've got lots of things going on. I can speak to this. But how many weeks do we have to be gone? Is it one week out of, out of a, a wide variety of weeks, or is it two or three? When, when do we start asking the question, brothers and sisters, are we really committed to this thing called the walk of Christ? If the Bible says that we are to not forsake assembling together, when do we start asking the question, I have forsaken the assembly of God's people? 
And I'm not going to sit there and tell you what you need to do, but i got to ask the question. I see the attendance roles of our church, and it saddens me. Because we need to gather together, and we need to be committed together as Elisha was. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to let you go hanging. I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to stick it out, because if you're going, I'm going. Notice why, because there's a connection. He's committed because there's a connection. Verse 9 and 10 tells us in the text. It says the following. When they had crossed, Elijah had said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before, um, before I am taken up. Uh, and he says, taken up from you. And this is what Elisha says. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Elijah says, you have asked a difficult thing. And then he says, if you see me taken up, it'll be yours. I want to apply that concept to our life as we assemble together. Have you ever imagined that when you come to church, what God is requiring of you is to give of yourself to someone else? When Elijah was leaving, he asked Elisha, is there anything I can do for you? And you know what Elisha says? He says, I want what you've got. Have you ever thought, as you walked in today, into this cold auditorium, which is finally warming up. I can feel it on my head. As, as, as we entered into this place, beyond the singing, beyond the preaching, beyond the, uh, the interaction with people, that someone might want something that you have. And I don't mean in a bad, covetous way. What I'm saying is, is that God may be asking you to give of yourself to someone else. That someone's sitting there saying, I just wish I could have the faith like so-and-so. I wish I had the courage like so-and-so. Have you ever thought that coming into church, that God may be calling you to speak into that person's life, to give a part of who you are? Some of you have come in today and you're like Elisha. You've come in and you're, you're broken and you're hurting and you're looking for an answer. You're saying, just, I wish someone would speak into me. I wish someone would just give me some hope for tomorrow because I can't go into another week feeling the way that I do. That's fellowship and that's commitment. But how can you do that if you're gone? How can you speak into someone's life when you're not here? When they're expecting to see you and you don't show up? You say, Tim, you're making more of attendance than it needs to be. Am I? Am I really? If we're not here, then who will speak? If we're not here, then who will encourage? If we're not here, you say, well, someone else will do it. How do you not know that this is the day, this is the Sunday that God has called you to be the one joyful person in our assembly? Could that not be the case? Could it not be that you're the one person that's going to speak into the world of Village Bible Church today? It may be you, and Sunday, this Sunday may be your Sunday. And no, you didn't get an email blast about it. He was connected. I want what you've got. Now this leads us to one final point. And that is that if we want to be ready for our departure, then we must be reminded that we must work to win the prize. We must work to win the prize. One of my famous, favorite passages of Scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Speaking of the resurrection of the Lord, speaking of our own resurrection and the coming of our Lord, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says the following, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. 
Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let me tell you, everything else you do in this world is in vain because it will one day be destroyed. But what you do for eternity is what will matter. And that's what Elijah lived for. He lived a life focused on eternity, not the temporal. And Elijah shows us that a life dedicated to the Lord's work, first of all, involves faith in the Redeemer. I know your outline says a little different, but just erase that and say faith in the Redeemer. Elijah lived by faith. And we have to live by faith. Because if we don't, we live in vain. The Bible says anything that's apart from faith is sin. Anytime that we live apart from faith, we're doing it on our own. We're pursuing our own ways. And the writer of Hebrews says that Elijah, it doesn't say of Elijah, but it says of faith that it's being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And Elijah did that because at his word, Elijah confronts a king. By faith, Elijah faced death of a little boy. And by faith, he asked that his life would be returned. By faith, Elijah called down fire from heaven. By faith, he called for it to rain, and it did. By faith, by faith, by faith, each and every time, Elijah obeyed God. And because of this faith, I can tell you that Elijah pleased God. You and I must live by faith. We will not serve God as he's called us to without it. It's the kind of faith that is lived out, that is willing to speak amidst the jeers. It's the kind of faith that forces us to get on our knees and to pray. It's a kind of faith that asks God to do the impossible even when it seems like nothing will work. It is faith to be patient in the waiting rooms of life that we find ourselves in. It is having faith in the times of plenty. It is having faith in the times to obey in the times of lack. And this is why Elijah and the ancients are commended for it. Let us walk by faith and not by sight. Elijah did it. Let us be followers of his footsteps. Finally, it involves, or secondly, it involves finding those who replace us. Finding those who will replace us. At the end of the passage, we see that uh, they're walking and talking, Elijah and Elisha. And Elisha says, hey, I want what you have. In fact, I don't just want what you have. I want a double portion of it. And I thought about that, and I, I look at the life of Elijah, and we didn't talk about this very much, but Elijah is a discipler. Ever since Elisha shows up, they, they're living life together, and Elisha's going to take over for Elijah, and so there's a lot to be talked about. There's a lot to be seen, and Elisha's taking notes from Elijah's life and, and taking all that in because he's the next generation. He's the next guy to take over. And so what happens? Elijah pours into him. I want you to understand a couple things about raising up the next generation. Because this is important for us to know. First of all, if you want to find those who will replace us, it involves allowing someone to shadow you. Write that down. It means allowing someone to shadow you. What I see with discipleship is not Elijah and Elisha getting together at Starbucks and saying, all right, you're going to be the prophet now. You're going to take over for me. You're enjoying your latte? Good. Okay? Now this is what you've got to do. Okay? And after a half an hour of talking and maybe some prayer, they get up and say, well, we'll meet in a couple of weeks and we'll talk more about it. That's not what happens. They lived life together. Wherever Elijah went, Elisha went. They shad- he, he was in his shadows all the time. And I want us to think about that. Is there anyone in your life that is watching you and imitating your faith? 
There have been three men in my life who, who have had a huge, indelible impact in my life, and all three of them, I can't remember a time where I sat with a cup of coffee or a cold beverage and sat there and talked across the table. My father said, walk with me, and as I imitate Christ, you're going to see that. John Avery in my life, a man who was the student ministries pastor here, man, I went to grocery stores with him. I saw him fight with his wife. I saw him yell at his kids. But what I saw over and over again was a man who followed God. And I said, man, I want that. I want to live like that. I want to I have that kind of life. It's not an easy life, but I want that. And I walked in that path. Who in your life is shadowing you? Some of you, it's easy. You say, well, it's the rugrats behind me. Some of you moms are saying, are you kidding me? I want them out of my shadow. Get them away. Go to the women's retreat. Great little advertisement. It doesn't just involve shadowing, but it's also recognizing a willingness to allow those who come after you to surpass you. Elisha says, I want to do more than you did. And he doesn't do it in a prideful way. He does it in a way to say, hey, I know God gave you power and strength, but I want something more because I want to write my own history of me following God. And so I want what you have, and I want that extra measure because I want to serve God in some big ways. And some of us want to leave legacies of holding on to what we've done so that people remember our name instead of handing it over to the generation that comes. In a recent Christianity Today magazine article, I was floored to find out that the three most listened to evangelicals on the radio are all dead and have been dead for five years, but their preaching still goes on. J. Vernon McGee, Adrian Rogers, and D. James Kennedy. And I have to ask, well, those are great and godly men who are now long gone. Where's the generation that comes after them? And why do we have to listen to dead folk when in our day and age there are prophets today? Now, I'm not saying that listening to an old tape is bad, but my goodness, when do we start forgetting what happened in the past and continue to hand off to the future? Many times we forget to do that. And a big reason why? is because we live in the shadows. You, if you go on and study the life of Elisha, and maybe the Lord willing will do that sometime as a, as a whole group, Elisha does incredible things. In fact, right away, right away after Elijah goes, Elisha performs his first miracle. And in verse 15, the company of prophets from Jericho who were watching said, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. I know I'm running out of time, but I want to speak very clearly to something. I've used this series to talk a lot about my departed brother. And i got to tell you, I was, I was a freshman when he died. He was a senior, most popular kid in school, had everything that you would want in regards to things, and I was a lowly freshman. I had very few friends. I had nothing going for me. And then he dies. And it was one thing to live in the shadow of, of an older brother who was athletic, good-looking, funny, And now he was dead. The guy became immortal. My goodness, I couldn't do anything because he had no faults once he died. Everybody forgot those things and what a great guy he was. And then there's Tim who can't make a thing out of life. Mistake after mistake after mistake. And I lived just dying thinking, man, I'd rather die than go on with life because I'm never going to amount to anything. And this tortured me as a high schooler and it forced me to make a lot of stupid mistakes. And then... I was ready to graduate. No intention of going where, going to school. My mom had to enroll me in Wabansi the weekend before school started. That's how, how focused I was. 
and my graduation party. I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited. And some of you may remember this. My graduation party was a debacle. The worst storm that I've seen in years comes in. It throws the tent a mile away and just a horrific storm. And there's pity party Tim, you know, nobody showed up because of this. Some people showed up, but you know, not the whole group that was going to. And this is a great synopsis of my life. And then after all that's done, the calamity that I began to espouse in my own thinking, my dad calls for me to come out to the patio. And he says, look to the east. And I look over to the east, and it's sunny now. The storm is gone, and of course you've got to the east the dark of the clouds that have just passed. And the two most brilliant rainbows are over the horizon. And this is why I love my dad. Because he put his arm around me and says, I know this first part of your life has been tough. I know you've lived in your brother's shadow. I know it's been hard. But he says, you remember Elisha in the Bible? He got a double portion. And he said, I know your brother did great things. But here comes your double portion. And I got to tell you, That was probably the first time anybody spoke prophetically into my life. And I look at the faith of my father to speak into that. And I'll tell you, my brother did great things. But without sounding a bit prideful, God has allowed me to do far more. And I can say that with total honesty and transparency. And can I tell you something? You may be in the shadow of someone else today. It may be your mom. It may be your dad. It may be your spouse. It may be Mario or one of your elders. It may be someone that you find yourself in. I wish I could be like that. Just ask. Just ask, Lord, I want to be like that. I want to do those types of things. I don't want to do it so that I can have a great name for myself. I want to do it because I want to make your name glorious throughout this world. And if you would, Terry, if you would allow, I'll be faithful in my way of doing it, but I want to do that. And some of you are not doing the things that you desire to do because you've not asked. You do not have the scriptures say because you have not asked. You say, well, Tim, There's some things we can't do. Jesus even said, greater things will you do after I'm gone. I don't know how that could be, but Jesus said it's so. Finally, we see, and I need to close, it involves involves finishing the race well. We've seen our prophet friend finish well. In verses 11 and 12, the Scripture says that chariots of fire and horses of fire appear and separate the two of them. And Elijah is sent up in a great wind, a great whirlwind. And notice what Elisha says. Very quickly, don't close your Bibles yet. He says in his final words to his friend, to his mentor, he cries out in verse 12, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. I'd never recognized this before, but both of those titles are given to Elijah. I want you to notice that a life that finishes the race well is a life, when he speaks of father, it speaks of respectful maturity. When you have finished the race, you are mature in Christ. And Elijah was the father figure. He was the man who had gone before the rest of them and done the job that had been called of him. But he also says he is the chariot and horseman of Israel. And this speaks of his authority. Let me tell you something. When we are faithful to God, God will allow us to mature, to become fully and completely um, in Christ, complete. But he also gives us an authority. 
and authority to speak to a world that needs to hear about Jesus. Authority to call that which is wrong in our world to be brought to repentance in Christ Jesus. As you and I wait, as we walk and as we work for the Lord, we can be confident by his grace that through his strength that we will leave this world, whether by casket or through the clouds, as mature people who speak with the authority of Almighty God to the world around us. Let us receive that double portion. Let us receive the words of our prophet and friend Elijah and live like him because he was a man like us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for this series. I thank you for the impact that it's had in my own life and what it's meant to me over these years. Lord, to take your servant Elijah and to lead, us, lead him away as you did is a marvelous thought. But Lord, I pray that we too would recognize that today could be the day that we would depart. And Lord, I pray that in your coming, whether by taking us through the grave or as I've said through the clouds, that Lord, we would be ready, that we would be watching and praying that we'd be eager to do the work of the Lord, that we would speak to the world around us, and that we would do so so that your name is made glorious throughout the earth. Thank you for this example, the example that had all kinds of victories, some defeats, and that speaks to the very essence of who we are, a man just like us. I pray that we will live to be just like him because he imitated you. Thank you again, Lord. We give you the praise and the glory for what you're going to do with it. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.